27. Acts chapter 27. Title of the talk today is A Total Loss of Control. We're going to read through um, one of the more dramatic stories in the New Testament. Uh, and so uh, sit back and imagine um, yourself, if you can, being there. Um, it's uh, The Bible has an understated way of putting most things. As we look into this story, we'll see it was you know, a pretty wild ride. Um, Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. So we've got Paul as a prisoner of Rome now. Um, he's appealed to Caesar. He's going to be sent to Rome to plead his case before the highest authority. That means um, he needs to get on a ship. Uh, They're going to take him and a whole heap of other prisoners over. Verse 2, In entering into a ship of Adramitium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. So there, uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, is always careful to establish fact and throw in supporting evidence. So not only is Luke on this voyage, because he's he's saying us, you know, so the writer is clearly uh, part of this but he's also said there was another person there, Aristarchus, one of um, our group. He can establish that this happened as well. So this is a true story, you know, and there were people at the time who were not only, um, you know, told about this story, but it happened to them as well. We got Paul, we got Luke, we got Aristarchus, and all the rest of the people on this ship as well. Uh, verse 3, And the next day we touched at Sidon, which is sort of in modern-day Lebanon, I believe, so they're going up from Palestine. Up the coast there. If you, in fact, if you know uh, the Mediterranean region, then you're probably all right. But if you don't, in the back of your Bible, you may have a map that looks a little bit like this. Uh, at the very back, it'll say Paul's missionary journeys or something like that, and it'll have a few different, you know, lines and arrows and so on on it. If you look closely at it, you might find the one that says Paul's voyage to Rome. Uh, it's the green arrows in my Bible, but it might be slightly different in yours. You can actually sort of follow along on that, if you like, as we read through the verses. So they're going up from Judea, up uh, that um, coast of the that uh, far eastern coast of the Mediterranean. So they're launching, uh, touching at Sidon now. And Julius courteously entreated Paul, gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. That means actually they went in the north of Cyprus, using it as a bit of a shield from the winds that were not really helping them. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. So they've made it to southern Turkey, basically. Things weren't particularly eventful, but it was a bit of a slow journey because the wind wasn't really um, helping them out. Remember, there were no motors at this time, um, so they were very reliant on the wind. Here's where things start to get interesting. And there, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. So they're changing ships now. The ship was probably part of the Alexandrian grain fleet. So uh, Egypt and surrounding areas supplied Rome with grain, uh, a lot of grain. Roman Empire is very successful, very prosperous, um, very wealthy, uh, and needed grain just like our own society today, and it's one of those staples in, in our diet, lots of different things that are made from it. Well, they needed it in Rome as well, in large quantities, and it was the Alexandrian fleet that came from Alexandria at the top of Egypt, 
uh, sailing to and from Rome all the time with shipfuls of wheat, shipfuls of it. Now, these were the biggest, the bestest, the fastest ships on the Mediterranean at the time, and, and the crews were the best. They knew the Mediterranean waters like the back of their hand. They were very experienced. They were, they were very, very clever. They did this stuff all the time, just back and forth. Alexandria, Rome. Alexandria, Rome. Whichever route suited best, they knew that all, they knew all the islands, they knew all the winds, they knew the waters, they knew the coasts, they knew what they were doing. Um, some of the biggest, one of the biggest, um, Alexandrian grain ships that has been, uh, discovered was more than 50 meters long. So these are big, well-built ships. We sort of think, oh, this is 2,000 years ago, what they know about shipbuilding. It turns out they knew a lot about shipbuilding. They built very, very uh, well, uh, very, very nice ships. So um, they knew what they were doing, and they had a really, really good ship to go on. Verse 7. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Nidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmon. Again, refer to the map if you want to know where these places are. But the winds aren't really cooperating, uh, not pushing them in the way they wanted to go. And hardly passing it, so they came in very, very close to this particular island to try and get a bit of shelter from the winds that weren't helping them. And hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. So they're on the southern coast of Crete now, I believe. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already past, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with much hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. So what's happening here is that we're coming into September, October, time which is um, autumn in that part of the world and of course heading towards winter the Mediterranean gets quite dangerous in winter like a lot of waters do I suppose um, bigger storms much colder harsher conditions and, and so on now the fast that's mentioned there is the day of atonement which is roughly in that sort of late September early October period and that was a little bit of a marker for probably sailing after this point is is dangerous now even Paul knew that. I mean, he was pretty experienced at travelling around on ships, so you know he would have picked up a bit here and there about about how to do that sort of thing. But the centurion, who had an imperative, needed to get these prisoners back to Rome, and even the master and the owner of the ship, and perhaps the owner uh, may have been fairly economically motivated to get back to Rome as well, they decided, no, we're going to push on. Paul said, no, bad idea. Uh, you know, common sense says you shouldn't sail after this time. It's going to cost us. But they decided, no, we're going to move on, and the centurion believed them. Verse 12. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, uh, means the place where they were, they couldn't really sort of berth the ship there for the winter. They were going to at some point. They weren't going to try and sail during the winter. So that, that's good. You know, they're sensible sailors. They know what they're doing, right? But they needed to find a better place to put the ship in to make sure it's sheltered from the winter. They didn't listen to Paul, they decided to push on. The more part advised to depart thence also, middle of verse 12, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete and life toward the southwest and northwest. So perhaps that particular harbour at Phoenice 
has some options for them. They could put it this way or they could put it that way, depending on how they wanted to shelter the ship from the harsher weather of winter. So they're trying to get to this place for Nice. It's further along the southern coast of Crete. So they, they decided they're going to come out from where they were and just take a little journey to this other place and put the ship in there and make sure it's nice and safe for the winter. Stay there, then when the rough weather's over, off we go to Rome. Verse 13. <clears throat> and when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing fence, they sailed close by creek. They were keeping nice and close to the coast, just cruising along, trying to make it to this um, this decent harbour. Verse 14. But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Euryclidon, probably a north uh, northeasterly. Um, and again, if you refer to your map, you can see that that's the wrong sort of wind um, for getting to where they wanted to get. In fact, it was going to blow them in almost the opposite direction from where they were trying to get to. 15. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. So they've decided this wind's come out of nowhere, they now need to let the ship go with it because trying to fight against it is going to be too harmful to the ship. So let her drive um, means, you know, they sort of had their foot on the brake, now they've just taken it off uh, and, and let the wind sort of, you know, carry them along whichever way it wanted to take them. Verse 16, they're getting blown away from their purpose now, well and truly, and running under a certain island which is called Clouder, we had much work to come by the boat. Um, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, struck sail, and so were driven. There's a fair bit of terminology in there. Um, anyone who knows me knows I'm not a seagoing person, so I had to uh, research a lot of this, and there's a little bit of conjecture about a couple of these terms, but um, running under a certain island means they went south underneath uh, this island called Clouder. What, that, what happened there is it gave them shelter, from this northeasterly, and it gave them the opportunity to really prepare the ship for the storm they were now in. Right? So they used the shelter of that island to come by the boat. That means the boat they were probably trailing in the water behind them, the one they would have used to row to beaches and so on uh, from, from the big ship. Um, they needed to bring that up into the ship. So pulling that in, bringing it up, tying it either to the you know to the um, side of the ship or right up into the ship and, and making sure it's it's tied down. Um, once they'd done that, they used helps and undergirded the ship, big, big, thick ropes, and they passed them under the ship. So if you can imagine uh, how much work that would be, particularly in stormy waters. Um, you've got to sort of put it at the front of the ship, this big looped uh, rope, and, and then pull it along so that it is now part of it underneath the ship in the water, and and coming up onto the deck, and then it gets pulled really, really tight. And there's a few of those. Right, done uh, up and down the ship. What for? This is where it really starts to hit you how much of a situation they were in. Those ropes are to hold the ship together. <laughs> All right, that's what they're for. You know, big, heavy ropes that are pulled tight to pull this ship and hold it together so it doesn't break apart in the waters, uh, the, the crazy waters that are being stirred up by this wind. This now starts to give us some indication of the of the danger and the situation they're in. And yet, I mean, the crew's impressive, aren't they? They know what to do. They have probably been in a similar situation before. They had these they had these ropes. They know how to undergird the ship. They know they've got to bring the boat up. Their experience, their worldly wisdom, you know, it's coming to the fore. 
they're doing what they need to do to get through. Struck sail. Uh, there's um, they, they feared that they might fall into quicksand. So there's uh, um, some quite large um, sandbars and, and quicksands at the top of the north uh, coast of Africa. Um, it seems to indicate they were getting blown so far um, sort of to the southwest that they were going to come quite close to that northern coast of Africa. Uh, it's known as a bit of a graveyard for ships, particularly in that time, and they didn't want that to happen. So um, they struck sail. There's lots of um, different meanings about what that might be. Some people say they put the sail in the water at the back to act as a great big break on the ship so that it couldn't be pushed you know, at speed towards the north coast of Africa. Others say they chopped down the mast. I don't think that's necessarily the case because they take those sorts of actions a little bit later and so on. But whatever it was, the crew knows what they're doing. They're experienced. They're the best. This is the best boat on the Mediterranean, or one of. Now, these guys know what they're doing despite what's happening uh, to them. Verse 18, And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship, which means we're now starting to throw things overboard. Not the grain just yet, because that's what we're trying to get to, to Rome. Not the prisoners, because the Roman centurion needs to deliver them alive to Rome, but other stuff. Whatever is sort of unnecessary, off it goes. We've got to make this ship lighter. And the third day, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. A lot of the stuff that's needed on board to help the ship work uh, the way that it's supposed to. You can tell I'm a sailor, can't you? Um, I've got no idea what this stuff would have been. But the tackling is, is all the, I don't know, the winches and, you know, the little levers and, and pulleys and stuff. All of that, over it goes. We've got to make this ship lighter. They're taking away their ability to really control this ship, you know, on, on calm waters in normal sort of sailing conditions but this shows the gravity of the situation this is the third day now and they're they're doing this with their own hands chucking this stuff overboard that would otherwise be needed verse 20 and when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared and no small tempest lay on us all hope that we should be saved was then taken away there's a couple of things you can draw from that observation no sun nor stars in many days appeared firstly it was very cloudy (laughs) Um, I don't think it's saying that it stayed dark even during the daytime. It would have got light and day still and, and dark at night, but they couldn't see the sun, they couldn't see the stars because it was a huge storm. The second thing about this is that those are the things they used to navigate. So now they've got no hope of navigation as well because their navigation aids have been taken away over a period of quite some days. So now they're lost, <laughs> lost in the Mediterranean. No idea if they're going this way, east, west, north, whichever. Completely lost. No small tempests, a large storm. So now, even after all of the steps they've taken, even after all that experience, and even after making sure the ship's held together and doing what they need to do to, to reduce the collateral and, 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 and sail through this storm, and even after having the best crew on the Mediterranean, they've lost hope. It's been taken away from them. They didn't chuck their hope out. It's described here as being taken away from them because the situation now is such that it just doesn't look like it's gonna, we're gonna come through. That's the point that they've arrived at now, despite having the best of the best. Verse 21, but after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. That's a fancy way of saying, I told you so. 
verse 22. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me, howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. So Paul's been given some encouragement from the Lord, and he's passing that on to the others, despite the depth of the hopelessness of this situation that they're in. Verse 27, the narrative goes on. But when the fourteenth night was come... (laughs) Yeah, we sort of, we, last time we read about the time was the third day. The ten, eleven days have passed now and we're into the fourteenth night. For two weeks they've been blown up and down the Mediterranean. Uh, no idea where they are. Unable to get back on course. They've chucked out most of the stuff that would otherwise help them control the ship. They're basically just hanging on and hoping that it ends one day soon. But when the fourteenth night was come as we were driven up and down in Adria, um, It doesn't refer to the Adriatic as we know it today. It's another part of the Mediterranean back then. About midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Midnight, so it's dark, really dark, because there's clouds, so there's no stars or moon to light the way. Um, And yet somehow they knew they were near some country. Again, they're, they're worldly smarts, you know, their experience and their intelligence in these situations, that being a crew of a big ship, it's helpful. It's coming out for them, isn't it? That somehow they knew they were near some country. Could they hear maybe waves breaking against the shore? Maybe there were birds about, and that sort of told them land might be close by. Don't really know. Maybe they just had that feeling that, you know, people of certain levels of experience get about something. Um, in verse 28, and they sounded. So now they're putting down a, a rope with um, probably knots uh, tied at certain lengths. Uh, a fathom, uh, as mentioned here, fathoms almost two meters long. So you put this rope down, and you see how far down it goes before you feel that it touches the bottom, and then you get an idea of how deep the water is underneath you. Well, they sounded and found it twenty fathoms, which is around about thirty-six meters deep, fairly deep. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it fifteen fathoms, which is about twenty-seven meters deep. Oh no, <laughs> we're running out of water. The ground's coming up to meet us. So that's bad. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a, as I said, seagoing person, but even I know that, you know, that the ship doesn't go on land, right? It goes in the water. So if the land's coming up to meet you, that's bad. You probably need to stop going in the direction you're going. Verse 29. Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. That's all they got. That's all they've got. The best crew in the Mediterranean, the best ship in the Mediterranean, and this is what they're reduced to. Guys, get the anchors, throw them out the back, and pray to whichever God you believe in, because that's all we've got now. Wish for the day. Wish by some miracle the sun will rise four hours early instead of when it normally rises. That's this is what they've got now. All right, that's the only hope that they've got left. We're wishing for the day. They've uh, chucked the brakes on big time and hoping that um, they get daylight very soon. Verse 30, and as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, so they'd had enough, when they had let down the boat into the sea under colour, as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. So uh, it's a bit of a weird description there, but the the crew 
have decided this is pretty hopeless. Um, we're out of here. So they went, uh, guys, we're just going to go and put some anchors out of the foreship. You just turn around and mind your own business and don't watch as we actually really get the boat that we've brought up, uh, all get in it and, and head down to the bottom and, and get out of here. They, they were pretending they were going to do something when really they were going to escape in the little boat. Uh, Paul was onto it. He told the centurion, verse 32, then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. So they had obviously started putting this boat out over the water uh, and they were all going to get it in it and take off and the centurion ordered his soldiers and that is getting quite dramatic now. Come up, chop the ropes and the boat fell down into the water. Um, you can imagine the crew would have been fairly um, upset about that but, you know, Roman soldiers got the swords so they'll do what they say. Verse 33, and while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that you have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. There is another cameo appearance by Paul, encouraging, reminding them, we're going to get through this, we're going to get through this, so now it looks hopeless, but you just got to keep pressing on. Verse 36, uh, sorry, verse 37, and we were uh, in all in the ship, 203 score and 16 souls, 276 people on board this ship. Verse 38, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. Again, an indication of how bad things have gotten. They're, they're now casting out the very reason why they're on this voyage in the first place, the wheat, the cargo, uh, thousands uh, of dollars, millions of dollars perhaps worth of this precious cargo that's supposed to be taken to Rome. That's now going over the side as well. Verse 39, And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore, probably a bay uh, with a beach, uh, into the which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in the ship. They're still working. Their minds are still ticking over. They've got strategies for how to handle this stuff. So it's not a very, um, it's not a very pleasant one. But now the strategy is to aim the ship at the beach and, and let it drive into the beach so that we can at least get off of it and onto land. That's the strategy now. Verse 40. And when they had taken up the anchors, <laughs> they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind and made towards shore. So if you've ever been, if you've ever driven a manual car, what they're doing at the moment is they've got the clutch pressed down and they've got the accelerator pressed down as well, right? And and now they've let the clutch go, basically. So they, they want this ship to get speed and really spin its wheels and go towards this beach as hard as it can. That's That's what they're doing. This is their strategy now. Verse 41, And falling into a place where two seas met, possibly a reef or a sandbar, they ran the ship aground. And the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. So even this this last-ditch strategy of beaching the boat didn't work. Instead, they hit something before they got to the beach. They're still very much in the water, and it's so bad now that the ship is stuck and the waves are so violent that the ship is getting broken up. Verse 42, And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim 
should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land, and the rest, some on boards, I like that, I always picture them on surfboards, uh, and some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Wow. That's a story about a total loss of control. It's a story about people who were the best at what they did and had the best equipment, uh, and yet somehow still... The world conspired, the elements conspired in this story to completely take away all control from them and with it all hope at certain times as well. That's what this story is about. The situation was really, really bad. Despite their great skill, skill and experience, which they kept trying to apply all along the way, even in the most desperate situations, they just were unable to be master of what was happening to them. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. So uh, we're picking up here with Jesus and his disciples are in a ship and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee over to another part. And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. That's verse 1 of Mark chapter 5. There's some thought about who the Gadarenes were. They were probably not Jews. They were probably um, a Gentile race, which is kind of interesting that Jesus would go over there. Um, to see them, but I think it becomes apparent why, uh, as you read on through the chapter. He was going there for one person in particular. Verse 2, And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broke in pieces, neither could any man tame him or subdue him. And always night and day he was in the mountain and in the tombs, crying uh, and cutting himself with stones. Here's a man uh, who, for whatever reason, and through circumstances we're not told about, has had all control taken away from him. He's completely destitute. He's out of his mind. He's not in any any control whatsoever. You see his state. Um, he lives in the cemetery. <laughs> he he can't be bound. He's completely uncontrollable. He's completely unrestrained. Um, even the best um, chains and fetters, even the best strategies, even the the world's strongest um, best uh, advice and strategies can't contain the loss of control that this man has experienced. Um, <clears throat> And he's in quite a way. He, uh, we find out later uh, that he's probably not clothed. All dignity uh, taken away, all control taken away. And now it's a pretty bad situation. Um, and as we told there in verse 2, it was due to being possessed with an unclean spirit. Now, um, having had a look at what happened to Paul's boat, well, it wasn't his boat, but he was on it, um, and having had a, a very short sort of look at, at this man, um, I think sometimes, even though we may not have been in circumstances as dire as those two stories, we perhaps know what it's like to feel like control's been taken away from us. Um, 2020 was an interesting year for that, wasn't it? As you looked around at people's reactions to what was happening, there was certainly a lot of fear, uh, certainly a lot of anxiety. And I'm not sure that people were as, were as scared about catching a virus as they were disturbed by the uncertainty of the situation. 
and the routine being disrupted and life no longer being the same as what it had been all this time up until now. I think um, people reacted uh, perhaps more strongly to having that control taken away than perhaps a fear of getting sick and and so on. Um, Of course, I'm not saying that's necessarily um, bad or, or people should condemn themselves for feeling that way. It was a scary time. It was a weird time. Um, that, that perhaps has never happened to any of us. Uh, who here has been in a global pandemic before, before 2020? You know, really strange time. And, um, and we all react in different ways to these things. But that's just one example. Perhaps you've also had in your life circumstances where you feel like, I- I've lost control. And not through any of my own doing. It's just been taken away from me. You know, there's a sense of uh, anger, unfairness. Anxiety, fear, um, uh, shame even. Perhaps sometimes we do blame ourselves for things. Perhaps it might have been our fault slightly as well. But for whatever reason, we found ourselves in a situation where we've lost control. It's been taken away from us and now we're at the, at the, um, at the expense of the elements, the circumstances, the situations, the people around us. It's not a nice place to be. Um, in our own lives, that can be things um, that take away or that we can't get the mastery over. Things like lust and addiction and fear, um, anger, uh, self-doubt, self-loathing, um, a deep sort of melancholy that can come on us sometimes, uh, apathy, cynicism. We live in a very cynical world and sometimes we let that get the better of us instead of being hopeful and um uh, and hoping all things as first corinthians 13 tells us that love love does um we can feel a distrust for those around us we can feel bitter because of what's happened to us we can feel hurt hateful uh angry uncertain confused and so on in a way hopefully you can see the parallels to the story we've read in acts and even this man here now, his was a very dire situation. I'm not suggesting that the situations we've encountered is because any of us have been possessed with devils or anything like that. All right, But just drawing the parallels between the gravity of this man's situation and our own lives and the things we encounter. Perhaps uh, it, uh, sickness, uh, family circumstances, financial circumstances, issues at work, issues at school, all those things can come upon us and make us feel like this man felt, make us feel like, uh, the crew and the centurion and the prisoners felt on that ship. Taking measures that we never thought we'd have to. Trying to rest back control. Ending up having to cast anchors out the back and just wish for the day that it would come sooner than it might otherwise. That's a real hopeless place to be. Verse 6, but when he saw Jesus. Whenever you read a, um, well, a lot of the time when you read but in the Bible, that's a turning word. Something's about to change. And in stories like this, it's usually for the better. This is where I think as saints we, we're very well attuned. We, we hear testimonies all the time. We're very well attuned to, um, you know, there's going to be a moment in this testimony where things start stop going like this and start going like that. And you almost start to anticipate it and you feel that sense of, uh, you know, happiness and joy um inside when you sense the person's getting to that bit where they're going to tell you about but then I saw Jesus but then someone witnessed to me but then I got baptized and spirit filled 
but then I, but then I um, really broke through in prayer, and all of a sudden, like I say, it stops doing this and it starts. The story picks up. We we know those times, and this is one of those, one of those times. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. The word for worship means that he fell on his knees or even to the floor and lay down in front of Jesus to worship him. You know, out of all the things that, that had happened to this man and um, the gravity of his circumstances and how, how bad a situation he found himself in, he did one thing right. He had one thing going for him, and that is that when he saw the Son of God, he ran toward him and worshipped him. He did one thing right. And cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Jesus had, had commanded the spirit to come out. Usually when you read through these sorts of situations in the gospel, it happens straight away. Here it takes a few more verses until that actually happens. Um, we think of Paul. You know, making those appearances on deck in the, in the, right at the, um, at the bottom of those hopeless times. Saying, don't worry. God's going to come through. Don't worry. It's been revealed to me that, you know, God is a delivering God. God is a healing God. God is a blessing God. Sometimes there's just a little bit more to push through. For he said unto him, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Verse nine. And he asked him, what is thy name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. As you read through this, we get a pretty good read on the guy's mental state. It's sort of him, but it's not him. It's sort of not him, but it is him. He's completely confused. He's he's uh, possessed, as we read here, he says his name's Legion. A legion in the Roman army was 6,000 soldiers plus cavalry. I don't know that there was 6,000 devils inside him or whatever. I don't really know how all that works. But however it works, we get a, a, a real good sort of read on how bad the situation was here. Verse 10, and he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. That's pretty amazing authority. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out, out of the man, and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000, as in the pigs, uh, and were choked in the sea. <laughs> That's pretty dramatic. Like I said, this guy had nothing going for him except for one thing, and that is when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran to him. He threw himself upon the rock. He worshipped Jesus Christ, because he knew somewhere, somehow, inside that that was his only hope. It was his last hope. And we read the dramatic deliverance there and Jesus gave the devil's leave and they went out of the man and, and um, quite dramatically took the swine down the, down the hill and into the sea. You know, sometimes you only realize how bad the problem was after it's, after it's finished. Um, but Jesus came in and delivered, delivered the man. He got to work in the middle of it all, sort of like Paul with his appearances on deck and eventually the man was delivered. Eventually the hopeless situation was turned on its head so that the man realised, actually, when all else is lost, when control's been completely taken away from me, there's still one who can turn the situation around for me, and that's Jesus Christ. And they that fed the swine fled 
<laughs> and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. What a transformation. And I read this chapter, I'm slowly working my way through Mark lately. I read this chapter a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, almost brought tears to my eyes. The change, the transformation that took place in this man's life at this moment. What, um, what relief, what joy, what, uh, you know, innermost satisfaction and, and comfort this man must have now had to finally just be able to sit down, <laughs> to finally be able to have his dignity back, put some clothes on, to finally have his right mind working, some clarity, some peace, without it constantly feeling like, you know, it was going to explode. What a wonderful situation. Um, the people who saw it, they were afraid. We can't always expect people in the world to understand what Christ has done for us, um, but we hope that, you know, their reaction will be a bit better than these people. Verse 16, And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was coming to the ship, that's Jesus Christ, got back in the ship, he went over there for this guy. He crossed the sea. In fact, he ended up in his own little storm <laughs> across this sea and he had to deliver, you know, calm the disciples down and calm the waters and so on. He went through all of that to get to this guy. No one else bothered with Jesus Christ out of this. In fact, they told him, get lost, get lost, we don't like what you did. He went across the sea through a storm, troubled his disciples so he could get to this one guy and deliver him. And when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And that's what Jesus Christ is driven by. And that's why he filled you with the Holy Spirit. And that's why he healed you that time that you needed healing. And that's why he blessed you. And that's why he comforted you. And that's why he's in your life day after day after day after day. That's why he's crossed the sea. He's crossed the sea of death to provide for you. Because he's driven by compassion for you and for me. That's why he's done what he's done. So what's left then for us is what's left for this man here. Go home to your people, to your own, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed and began and began to publish in Decapolis. <laughs> that, that means um, ten cities. It was a region. So he didn't just go to his own city. He went to the whole region one after the other, and he told people how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Praise the Lord for that. Christ's compassion and work should be proclaimed to others. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. We might wrap up there. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Or Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, 
to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus came to resurrect the shipwrecked. He came to bring deliverance. He came to bring the good news. He came to bring salvation. He came to bring eternal life. He came to bring healing. He came to bring blessing. He came to bring protection. He came to bring comfort. He came to bring a union between you and I and one another and God. That's what Jesus Christ came for. He came for the individual. He crossed the sea. He went through the storm to save our shipwrecked lives. We heard some great testimonies today about lives that were um, either shipwrecked or heading that way. Talking with some of you yesterday, uh, particularly uh, Jan, finding out a little bit more about her testimony. You know, I think each each one of us has a testimony where we can pinpoint certain circumstances before and after we came to the Lord where we felt like we were just being blown up and down in the Mediterranean without a rudder and without a sail, at the mercy of the wind and at the mercy of the elements, at the mercy of the world. And yet you sit here with those situations delivered, saved. And if you're going through one at the moment, you know, uh, not through any sort of mental, um, you know, you haven't intellectualized it out, uh, but you know deep within, because the Lord's put it deep within through his Holy Spirit, that there's hope and that there is deliverance and that it's probably not far off now. You may be wishing for day to come on. Well, you know, there's nothing surer than that the sun rises except that there is something surer than that the sun rises, and that is that Jesus Christ delivers. That's a 100%. You can put it in the bank. If you feel like you're on course for shipwreck at the moment, do what the man in Mark 5 did. And throw yourself at Jesus' feet. Get down in prayer. Uh, have the saints pray with you. Have a prayer and fast. Get stuck into the word. Take a day off work to really dedicate yourself to the Lord. Really look to the Lord. Worship the Lord. What great, remember what great things he's already done for you. Go and tell others about it. The Lord's going to deliver you. He came to save those who were shipwrecked or on their way to that. Uh, if you read that verse that Jesus read back in Isaiah, it goes on to say he's going to comfort all those that mourn in Zion. Those of us who go through those situations, even though we're already spirit-filled, that make us that make us mourn, that bring us down. The Lord's come to comfort us. That's an extension of the ministry that He outlines here. He's going to give beauty for ashes. He's going to give the oil of joy for mourning. He's going to give the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You think about those things. How is that a fair swap? My life's in ashes, and God's going to give me beauty for it. I'm mourning. And God, Jesus Christ is going to come along and give me joy for that? How is that a fair swap? Well, it's not. <laughs> but that's what he's going to do. And he's already made provision for it because he died for us and he rose again. This day, this can be fulfilled in your life. Remember all the other times it happened? 
Well, this day it can be fulfilled in your life again. The Lord's got control. We may feel like we've lost control. The Lord's actually got it. Don't worry. He's at the head of our ship. We're going to make it through. For all the people say. So.